Land, we're back for another episode of Gems and Jokes with me, Ariel Tivon of Tivon Fine Jewelry. Before I get into today's podcast, I just want to ask whoever is listening to please subscribe. It's very easy. Just reach down to your phone or mouse if you're old school, if you're still using a PC, and click subscribe or follow. It'll make it so much easier to listen in the future. Plus, it will make me feel a little bit less like I'm shouting into the wind. Right, promo out the way. Let's get into today's podcast. Today is going to be interesting. I don't know about you guys, but for me, my greatest lessons have come from learning from other people's mistakes. It's funny because as humans, that's the way we learn. From infancy until adulthood, and especially in adulthood, we make mistakes and hopefully, I stress hopefully, we learn from them and don't repeat them. But it's interesting because at some point, Especially in modern society, we've moved away from being tolerant of making mistakes and have moved almost to a zero tolerance for any mistakes. I'm not going to get into a political or political correctness debate. We'll leave that to the social media warriors out there and the woke mob who are ready to tear the world and its mate apart for anything anyone's ever done wrong, ever. On my podcast, we'll keep our discussion confined to business and specifically to the jewelry and gem business. So, As the saying goes, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Well, I can tell you now, I am definitely with sin. I've made so many mistakes in the past and unfortunately, I've even repeated some. But on the whole, I believe I've learned a lot, especially from some of the biggest mistakes and have moved forward to be both better as a human as well as a businessman. So today we're going to be discussing possibly one of the biggest faux pas in modern times in the jewelry trade. If not the biggest certainly one of the most infamous. We're going to be discussing the famous words of one Gerald Ratner. Now, most of you by now have heard the story of Gerald Ratner. At some point in time, he had a jewelry empire worth millions. He was a working class boy who did good and built a business certainly to be commended, selling inexpensive jewelry and jewelry adjacent items. And unfortunately, it all came tumbling down by his own words, that unfortunately I think will echo into eternity. When asked how he managed to sell items that cheap, he responded by saying, because it's total crap. Now, let's get something straight here. I'm not here to beat up on Gerald. I think enough of that has been done already, and no one more than him knows the error of his ways. What I'm here to discuss is how we as business people and we in the trade can learn from his mistakes and move forward positively to ensure our trade as a whole is better for it and more importantly that our customers are better off for it. To help us do that, I've brought in someone who can help shed light on the Ratner story as well as hopefully how we can learn from this epic tale. Today I'm interviewing Jonathan Ratner, Gerald's cousin. So let's get going. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks so much for joining me on my podcast today. Welcome. It's lovely to be here. So before we get into your family history and the epic tale of what was, can I just confirm something? You are actually in the gemstone business. In fact, I think you're in diamonds. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Do you find with a name that rings true to a lot of people that it actually is a great talking point that it lends itself to business or do you find at times it's a hindrance? It's not a hindrance. Um, It's only relevant to a certain age and demographic. It's only relevant to a certain generation who remember seeing Ratner's stores on the high street. 
because, you know, I'm 62. Gerald is probably pushing 70 now, I would think. There are people in the business now that don't even remember Ratners, don't even know what Ratners is or was. And I do use my name quite blatantly if I want to get to speak to someone. It is your name. It's Jonathan Ratner speaking. I, you know, yeah. I, I kind of like, I, I use it as a sales tool. I use everything I can to help me sell. It certainly starts a conversation. Well, listen, you and me both, we both try and yeah. use at our disposal to try and sell. Tell me a little bit about your family history. How did your family get involved in gems and jewelry going back to the beginning? Because I don't think many generations back you were involved. Usually the jewelry and the gems business is a multi-generational or a family type business. When did you guys get into the business? What's the story of the family? Well, I think it was after the Second World War. My grandfather, my father's father, needed a way of making money. He'd been in various businesses prior to that. For whatever reason, they didn't really give him an, a gateway to earning money after the Second World War. So he then decided, you know, he had a skill of repairing watches. And he decided to start repairing watches in the, in the back of a house in St. Albans. And he had three sons, my father being the youngest of the three. The eldest of the three was Gerald's father, Leslie. And when Leslie came back from his national service, he didn't quite know what industry to go on. He brought, he came back from India and he brought back some Indian carpets with him. And he thought that would set him off on the road to commerce. But my grandfather said, well, you need a proper business. Yeah, you can sell those carpets, but what are you really going to do long term? He said, I'm a watchmaker. Let's open a jewelry shop. I'm sure you'll be very successful. If you can just get the stock, we'll sell. I'll repair all the watches and we've got a business. So the eldest son and also the eldest brother opened a jewelry shop. I believe it was called L. Ratner for Leslie Ratner. Then his brother, the middle brother, Jack, when he came back from national service, maybe a year or two later, he joined Leslie in the L. Ratner business. Right. And they started opening up in various places. I must be honest, I don't know the names of the locations, but they're kind of like loot. Bedford, St. Albans. It's that kind of conurbation that they were opening in high streets. Right. Okay. So by the time they were running their business, they were in their kind of pushing 30s, 35. And my dad was just turning 20 or whatever. So when my dad came back from his national service, his father, Philip, said to him, come on, David, we'll set up a business as well. Leslie and Jack are doing their thing. You and I will do our thing. Right. And we're going to call it F Ratnik because that was the initial of my grandmother. Her name was Fanny. So they opened shop and then they started opening in High Wycombe and this place and that place. Again, similar kind of story. And I think that between them, they had three or four shops each and they were doing quite well. And this was now you're talking mid 60s. Sorry to stop you. Was that quite a buoyant time for jewelry and for the industry? The way I understood it, particularly after the Second World War, if you could put something in the window, you'd sell it. Those so were heavy. He was getting the stock. Right. That's the key. And once you've done that, you you know, you, you've got a home run. Sounds like a dream. <laughs> I yeah, wish that was our problem today. But the normal channels of getting stock weren't open. Right. So you had to go through, you had to use your nous to, you know, fill up your shop with whatever you could. Yeah, but then they they also, you know, they they they, they were very smart in the locations that they chose. And then it got to a stage where F Ratner and L Ratner, those two two businesses, individual business, thought the next stage really for any successful retailer in the UK 
was to have a, a shop in Oxford Street. If you want to be a successful retailer at that time, the 60s, mid 60s, early 70s, you've got to have a shop in, in Oxford Street. Otherwise, you're not, you're not a player. Right. Still a little bit like that, I would say. You know, the big boys are always there. But individually, as individual companies, they didn't have enough security to convince a landlord to give them an Oxford Street shop. But as a joint business, if they were to combine their forces and say, you know, we're a company with 20 shops, not just 10. Yes. Suddenly you've got something interesting from the landlord's perspective. He's, oh, this is a solid business. This is Now they're a force to be reckoned with. So they join forces. Fantastic. Now they've got the stability and the clout will go with them and we'll give them an Oxford Street shop. So they joined forces, the two companies, and became we're, the Ratner's jewelers. Began. We're going off on a tangent for a second, but just out of interest, was Bond Street even a thing back then or did that come in much later? I think Bond Street was always a thing. Bond Street was the hoi polloi, wasn't it? That was, uh, you know, the pish posh, but Ratner's was not a pish posh jeweler. Ratner was a run-of-the-mill jeweler in the high street. But it's an interesting point because the jewelers in those days with Leslie at the helm, you know, running this hundred stores, whatever they ended up having. This was a company where to walk into a Ratner's stop, you, you had to open the door, the bell would ring. You know, you'd walk up to a counter. The guy would put a leather tray on the counter and start showing you things on the leather tray. It was all old fashioned operation. Although it was from a medium socio demographic, it was still a pish posh jeweler with, you know, you had to knock the door to come in and that kind Kind of thing. But it wasn't Bond Street, it wasn't Asprey, it wasn't Cartier, it wasn't trying to compete with those guys. Yeah. He was competing with John Lewis and Mum and Pup Store and, you know, Ernest Jones. What was Ernest Jones and what was H. Samuel and Leslie Davies and Terry's? There was a business called Terry's, which they ended up merging with and, you know, smaller businesses. Right. So now they finally, they open up here in Oxford Street. And they have a the head office in Great Portland Street where they're running the operation. And Jack, the middle son's busy with finding new properties and Leslie's running the business and my dad and his father in all honesty I don't know whether this is something you want to put in I don't know it's something I want to put in they were kind of sidelined actually because Gerald's father was a was a tough old boot and he wanted all the glory he wanted to run the business he saw himself as he was Mr Ratner so that was Gerald's father. It's yeah. a truism. You know, I have I have a little tale to tell, which kind of illustrates that, but it doesn't show Leslie in a very good light. Well, so. listen, at the end of the day, we don't provide therapy, but if you want to tell us, we're very interested to hear. So it's completely up to you. You only divulge what you're comfortable divulging. Right. Well, I, I'm going to put a caveat in that this is something, a story that I've been told. I'm guessing it's 100% true. I might have it completely wrong. Somebody, you know, Gerald could say, oh, no, that wasn't right. That never happened. I don't know. But in, in all honesty, I think it did. I think it's very important to illustrate, because my dad was a part of the business. You know, he was the little boy. And so when they merged, as I explained to you that they did, Leslie decided that he was prepared to take 33% of the business Jack was going to have, the middle brother was going to have 33% of the business. And my grandfather, Philip, was going to have 33% of the business. So Philip turned around to Leslie and said, well, what about David? You know, he's just joining the business. He, you know, he's important. He said, well, he's too young. He doesn't really count. So my grandfather had to split his 33% with my dad to make it right. I don't think the story happened. is unique, not in our industry. You know, we have a beautiful industry and I love our industry. But I have to say, especially I'll talk about the history of South African jewelers 
because I don't know that much about the history of the British Judith, but I have seen so many families. It's a very sad thing, but so many families build amazing jewelry businesses. And at the same time, the whole thing gets torn apart for little things like this. Well, I say little things. Sometimes they become very big things. But at the end of the day, the money sometimes spoils the broth. So it's a sad thing. You know, my dad ended up, you know, selling it. They went public. The business went like into a public company. I think this was just at the late. Uh, sorry. No, we're now in towards the mid 70s. And my dad decided I don't want to work here anymore. I'm selling all my shares. I don't want anything to do with Ratner's. I'm going to start off on my own and do something completely different. In retrospect, he got out on time to a degree. You know something? He didn't because as far as he's concerned, 100%, he, he was unhappy. You know, he wasn't getting on with his brothers. It was a bad news situation. He, for himself personally, you're right. Financially, if he would have not sold out his shares, he would have become a multimillionaire without even having to go into a shop ever again. Wow. At a point in time, at the end of the day, when everything... Wouldn't have been too long. Yeah. Wouldn't have been too long. Would have been, you know, another 10 years, 15 years, something like that. Well, listen, we all make our personal choices. No, I... So then your dad leaves. The rest of the business continues to grow. The business takes off to a degree an empire is built until along comes one fateful day. No, 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 no. You've gone... You've, 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 have, you've, have I skipped, have I skipped too much? You bring me back. So Leslie is running this show with a hundred stores, hundred Ratner stores, and he's struggling. He's struggling for varying reasons. One, he had a brain tumor and he had a, an operation. And I think his personality started suffering and business wasn't doing well. And he was coming up with ideas like, okay, if the shop's not doing well, maybe we should put an optician in the, you know, in certain stores and lease out some of the space and blah, blah, blah. So it was all going in a very odd direction. He didn't know how to rescue it. And his son, I think, had just joined the business, uh, Gerald, his son. And Gerald decides to do almost to do a Leslie Almost to do what like his dad would have done. I don't know what the, the ins and outs of it were, but he ended up superseding his dad. And I'm sure his dad didn't go lightly. <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. Another tale that's been told many times in our industry, but it happens. And then Gerald, I think at a similar time, Victor, the middle son's son, also joined. Right. So Gerald and Victor started running the business. Now, remember, I said to you, this is a business where the doors are closed. You have to ring the door. You know, you open the door and a bell goes off and the, an old crusty salesperson comes over and serves you. So Gerald then decided that's not the business I want to run. I want to stick stickers on the window, you know, telling everybody that's the last day of the sale. I want to have earrings for 99p. I want to have, you know, I want it to have music playing. I want to open up all the shop, all the doors, have air blowers to keep the staff warm and let's play music and entice people in the shop. Let's get this show on the road. Modernize it and stack them high and shift it. I'm not sure how modern it was, in all honesty. Well, modernize it in comparison to a guy arriving yeah. with a leather tray. Yeah, but almost bring it down to the lowest common denominator, which is fair enough. That's what works. That's what works. And you know something? It was a golden egg. And he was seen as the darling of the high street. And there were other darlings of the high street at the time that were doing similar things like George Davies of Next, Ralph Halpern of Topshop. These kind of guys 
were being on the front page of the newspapers and they're opening this shop and they've got this style and that thing and this brand and da 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 da, da. and they were like seen as the darlings and you, you think about it it was almost i think it was kind of um if i'm going to get my dates right it was kind of late 80s early 90s it was a big merchant banking boom around the world it was the thing that actually ruined everything for a lot of people but that was to come a bit later because what was happening was all these big investment banks like Salomon Brothers and Lehman Brothers and you know they were throwing money around to people like Gerald to say hey Gerald why don't you take over your competitors we'll help you we'll give you blah 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 you, why don't you go into the states we'll give you money to you know you're a public company start every every time they issue shares everybody makes money you know every time a deal is done you know the money is shared around everyone makes loads of money Gerald then moves the head office from Great Portland Street to Strutton Street in Mayfair and has a Mayfair head office to a lowly jewelry company really in with 100 stores but he ends up taking over a business twice his size H Samuel he ends up taking over all his competitors, Leslie Davis, Ernest Jones, H. Samuel. He buys them all. He then goes to the States, finds a company called Sterling, which is run by a guy called Nathan Light, and says to him, come on, Nathan, you know, you've got 500 shops all over America. Let's make it a thousand. So he buys K's and he buys Rogers and he buys this and he buys that. And he's doing that thing over there. And Gerald's doing this thing over there. And the merchant banks are loving it. They are loving it. Sounds right? amazing. The Gerald is loving it, right? But there's a big, big but, right? Nathan Light of America is a smart cookie, right? He knows how to merge companies together and he understands the uh, communication structure and how to get different brands talking to each other and for the benefit of the whole business. That's America. That's Nathan Light. Gerald, God love him. He hasn't a clue. He knows how to do the posters in the window and the cheap jewellery, blah, blah, blah. 500 stores. It's a different business. It's not the same business anymore. But he's surrounded himself, really, with sycophants. No one's going to say to Gerald, Gerald, you can't have your office in head office in Stratton Street anymore. You know, you've really got to put it all together in Birmingham and da, 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 da. Uh, you know, we need to merge these brands together. And the, no, 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 no. He had fiefdoms. He had H. Samuel was there and Ratners was here and Ernest and everyone's like working on their own little fiefdom and blah, blah, blah. No one's talking to anybody else. He didn't care because he was he actually became, in my personal view, I'm not giving this as a global view. This is very personal. And I've got nothing against Gerald. I like Gerald as a guy, but I, I genuinely think he was in a role that he couldn't do. And he, it was the king had no clothes. And that's why going to what you were just about to get to, he made that error. It's a judgmental error. If you're running a multi-global business, it doesn't matter whether it's paper clips or Durex, you say that we sell such rubbish, but we're so clever. Mate, you don't do that. So then things are growing, but nobody's correcting the mistakes. And finally, it ends up with that fateful day where he said what he said, and the rest is history. That day, when he said what he said, that was his party piece. It wasn't something he just didn't say it that day. He'd been saying it for like months at different venues and events. So the Sun the next day had crapness as the headline. And I think the Daily Mail had something like rottenness. They picked it up and ran with that. It. He's running a public company. So he's an employee. So the question that intrigues me the most is 
Did he say this as a joke, as he has been described saying that it was that he just wanted to make, you know, he was in front of a crowd. He had to throw in a joke to sort of woo the crowd. Or was this just instinct that even I, for example, I have said many things, you know, foot in mouth disease. You regret what you say instantly. But then again, I'm not standing in front of an audience the way he did. Or was this hubris? You know, was this a person who had reached such a pinnacle that you feel almost untouchable and you can say what you say and get away with? I think there's an element of that. But I also think there's an element of businesses at the time were very much concentrating on the share price. It was all about the share price. It wasn't about the people going over the counter, parting with their money for your merchandise. It was about how you get your share price up. And Gerald, I think, for my money, was all about the share price. You know, you walk into the head office in Strutton Street, this Mayfair office, looks very beautiful, wood paneling, blah, 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 beautiful girls, the secretaries. And if I were to get this right, I think even the share price was the first thing you saw as you walked in the door. But that was common to a lot of big businesses. I remember going into a, you know, I was in, I was in business before that in, in business development and I would go to people's head offices and a lot of them were doing that at the time. You walk into like Argos, Argos's head office, even though it wasn't as elaborate or what have you, the share price was there telling you straight away what the business was worth. And it was the, it, that was the culture of the time. It's almost a scene out of Wall Street with Michael Douglas, literally just watching pure scene out of the 80s. That was the culture of the time. That allowed Gerald to buy H. Samuel, Watches of Switzerland, Watches of Switzerland, Ernest Jones, Leslie Davies, all his competitors. He had no more competitors. And the only reason he was able to do that was because of the Michael Douglas characters who were running Wall Street, the Lehman Brothers, the Goldman Sachs. They were throwing money at people like Gerald because they were making a lot of money on the back of it. Every deal Gerald did, they made a cut. That worked. So that's where he was in the level of the business, if you like. And the underlings were clearing up all the mess. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by the underlings clearing up the mess. This is God's honest truth, right? Maybe about 12 months before he said this, I was in a shop in Tooting, a Ratner's store in Tooting, typical Ratner's store in a high street somewhere in London. And it was before Christmas. And the whole thing about a Ratner's shop, one of the key things about the Ratner's shops was that they were all about the windows, if you could get a shop that was all windows and a tiny bit of floor space that you could sell the goods, that was the, living the dream. The windows draw people into the shop. The windows go long, take you like a corridor into the shop. And then the next thing you know, you're in the middle of the shop. There's a salesman asking you, what are you looking at? Okay, you know, how many do you want? Da, 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 wrap it up next. So this is before Christmas in Tooting and the shop is packed with people. I'm not joking. There were lines of people six or seven people back holding their money up like this trying to get attention from the salespeople the manager is behind the windows with the streaming heat of all the spotlights everywhere and he's got notes money all over the floor and he's counting the money putting them in rolls and blah 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 <laughs> yeah it's la it's laughable it's like a glut it's a pure glut but i tell you what yeah the, the glut that's one thing the glut is one thing but the lack of 
security, the lack of direction, the lack of understanding what the people on the shop floor were going through. You know, if you went into a Marks and Spencers, no matter how small or big, you know, you'd have the security guards with the face things on, picking up the boxes of money, taking it to and from. It'd be all organised. A process, a business process. 100%. This was laughable. This was a big public company doing good business and the manager was stuck behind the window trying to get this thing organised. Like the pound notes everywhere, putting them in rolls, blah, blah, blah. He probably had to send someone around the corner to put it in the bank. Do you know what I mean? It was like there wasn't a system. <laughs> Crazy. Joe was concentrating on the share price, and that's great, and da, 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 da. But who was helping the process? Right. And seeing, you know, what was going on in the shops and making that work was weird. And you said to me, you know, what? What was going on in Gerald's mind when he, he did this? You know, was it hubris? The thing that comes to my mind is Gerald was, he used to play snooker the way I understand it. And he'd play snooker with Maurice Saatchi from, you know, Mor- Saatchi and Saatchi, who were big at the time. Michael Green, who was Carlton Television. And the three boys, they would be on meeting regularly for snooker, probably taking the mickey out of each other about their empires that they're building and, and having a laugh. And he was one of them, or at least want to be one of them. Bringing it back to the business side of things. I mean, there's some serious lessons that we can learn. And I think that's part of the reason of this podcast is to try and gain an insight. Yes, we're telling the story of Gerald. As I said in my preamble to this podcast, we're not here to beat up on Gerald. The point is to learn from his mistakes, to learn what we can take away and improve in our own businesses, improve in our own lives. And just bringing it back to his famous statement, his infamous statement, I should say, about selling crap. Now, okay, fatal flaw. We've discussed this. Should never have said it, no matter what you're selling. Major public company. But to be slightly fair, and again, I'm not excusing what he said, but surely when you're selling a pair of earrings for 99p or whatever else, you know, he was selling very, very inexpensively. Surely the public also somewhat plays a role in that. I mean, they can't be expecting that they're buying the crown jewels. Surely they're almost blinding themselves to the the reality that what they're buying is, it is what it is. They have a responsibility within that or is it? Can you you imagine the managing director of Poundland now going to the city talking about his business and saying, you know, actually, I think everything we sell is crap, but you know, we've got the systems in place, we do XYZ, blah, blah. He's never gonna say that. He said, We do the best deals, everything we sell is a pound, there's amazing value, it's incredible what we do. We get the manufacturers to create this stuff, and you get you can't get what in our store what you get anywhere else for a pound. You know, a whole set of batteries. No one does that. I mean, that's the kind of energy you expect from the managing director. Cool. That's what you want from your leader, right? From the the business leader. So value is actually irrelevant. It's about confidence in a product, no matter what the price is. Ultimately, it is worth what it's worth. But the public, by by virtue of handing their money over to you, is placing a faith, is placing a trust in you. And you have a responsibility to look after. You're appealing to what they want. You're giving them what they want. But don't degrade them at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. These are my clients. This is what they want. I deliver the best. I get them manufactured in such a way that I can deliver them at that price. That's my smart. That's how clever I am. Or we are as a business. We do these amazing things. Who else can sell diamond but gold earrings for 99p? And we do that because we understand the manufacturing process. 
We understand what our, our customers want and we put the both things together and we make people happy. Bringing it back to, you mentioned before about Nathan Light, which was the partner in America. You've got a different set of value cultures. Now, do you think if Gerald had done that in America, that the reaction would have been different? And I'll tell you why I asked the question, because there's different cultures of how we perceive mistakes and how we forgive mistakes. I'll take South Africa, for example. South Africa is actually, I think, quite similar to the UK, where people judge your mistakes quite harshly. It's a very small place. They place a lot of value in what you say. America seems to almost look at mistakes in a very different light. They, they see it as the price you pay in learning how to do business. Just judging generally by a lot of American businesses, American celebrities and so on, they seem to be a lot more forgiving of mistakes because they understand it is a process. So do you think, knowing what you know about the American side of the business and so on, do you think that if he had done it in America, that would have been perceived differently? The British media were hungry for a story. It was in the summer, I believe, in August. And, you know, the British media tore him to pieces. Yeah, the American media might not have picked up on it and da, 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 and it would have run its course more than likely. But, and this is a big but, it was an indication of something much broader that was happening in the business. It wasn't just the comment. The comment didn't kill him. The spotlight killed him. He put the spotlight on himself. Had he have had the troops behind him to show him what a great business he was running, he would have survived. But he didn't. He had sycophants around him. He was at the top of the tree, being the king of the castle, without any of the king's clothes. Nathan Light was a different animal completely. Nathan Light, for example, okay, this is a very quick example. There are other ones I've got as well. In the head office, Nathan Light used to have this thing called Rap with Nate. He'd invite the whole head office, everyone's invited to a big auditorium room where he'd stand there in the center with a microphone and you could ask him any question you like. Why haven't we got enough paper clips? Why is the blah, blah, blah? Why is, I, well, I bumped into a customer and they weren't happy. And, you know, he'll, you know, you rap with Nate. And, you, you know, he'll take, I'll take notes there and we'll get that sorted. And uh, he was opening himself up to understand his own business. I've never seen Gerald do that. Again, coming back to different cultures, I think that's what you've described. The Americans like to call it sometimes like a town hall type meeting where they do. I mean, I've seen footage of even somebody like Steve Jobs do it, uh, Jeff Bezos from Amazon and so on. All these guys, it's part of the... Again, part of the culture. I don't say everybody gets it right, but certainly being open to listening and bringing down the barriers goes a long way. I'll give you a more operational example. Okay, so you get to a stage where there's you're in Brent Cross in London and you've got three faces of three jewelers that Gerald owns in that environment. So you've got Ratner's, Ernest Jones, H. Samuel, and they've all got their shops at different parts of the mall in there. Somebody comes in for a diamond ring and the Ratner's manager hasn't got the stock. There is no way that the, the Ratner's manager's perception of H. Samuel and Ernest Jones is, we own them, we don't talk to them. You know, they're, they're something else. That's something that Gerald's doing. Blah, 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 blah. You know, we know nothing about them. The customer leaves the shop. There's no meshing. There's no interconnection between the branches. But you know what I'm going to say now, don't you? I was in a shopping center in Ohio. Again, three faces. 
Rogers, K's, actually, there wasn't K's, there was another brand there. And there were three brands there. I can't remember the names of them. Anyway, I was in the Rogers store and the customer comes in and wants a diamond ring and you haven't got it. The managers sit down, and my, you know, can you look after them, make them a cup of coffee, show them some other things, but I'm just going to make a few phone calls. He rings around the shops in the mall. Have you got the one carat, blah, blah? What's the closest you've got? Gets it transferred over, doesn't let the customer leave and makes a sale. Obvious. It's not only smart, it's bloody obvious. It is obvious. And I'll tell you what's even more scary is that you're talking about something that happened in the late 80s, early 90s. We're in 2021 where corporates have moved on a lot. Business has moved on a lot. But I can tell you right now, people still haven't learned that lesson. Not in this country. A typical example is just recently, maybe a couple of weeks ago, I went into a store, was looking for something. I won't name the store, but I was looking for something. They say, we don't have it. So I stare at them. They stare at me. And of course, I'm waiting for them to say, you know, hold on, we'll look for it for you. But of course, it's me saying, could you check with other branches? Could you check on your system whether you've got it perhaps in another store? I mean, think company wide, the success of the company as a whole. And as you ask the question, oh, it dawns on them, maybe, maybe. And of course, they looked and of course, they did have it at another branch. And they look back at me and they say, would you like us to arrange it? Why is that even a question? And we're in 2021. Ariel, I've gone a little bit broader with what I'm saying because they had to phone a different company with a different face here. It's not just within John Lewis or within Ratner's or within Gap, getting you the size of the jeans, blah, 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 whatever you want. This is going to another business that you've taken over and you've merged with it in such a way that everybody's trying to make it work. Whereas it, I, I got the feeling in Ratners when I was working in Ratners, which I was in a lot of the stores, the managers had contempt for the stores that Gerald had bought because they were Gerald's boys. They had Ratner on the fascia. They were Ratner's PLC. We're the babies. We're the, we're the, the ones that he really wants to look after. They had this kind of bravado thing going on. And H. Samuel had a different head office in Birmingham and, and Ratner's had a head office in Collindale. And never, it got the feet. I'm sure they were trying to merge things, but it felt like never the twain shall meet. You know, there were two different cultures. You do you, we do us. What was clever in the States was that what Nate broke down those barriers and made it into one business that had to make money. That was clever. Right. Okay. Here's another, another example, a very clever thing. I don't even know. You, maybe you can't even do this in the UK, but it just shows the way Nate was thinking about his business. He had this product in the stores called ESP. Extra sales potential. Pretty clever, actually. ESP is a nice thing. Extra sales potential. Every single sale you made, whether it was for a $10 signet ring, up to a $100, $1,000, $10,000 Rolex, you sell ESP. And ESP was something like, let's just say it was a $25 purchase where we will look after that product for its life. Even if you give it as a present, you get a little certificate. This has got ESP. We'll clean it for you. We'll repair it for you. If something breaks, we'll, we'll get the part and we'll sort it free of charge. It's, your, it's like insurance, right? Like a lifetime warranty, essentially. Lifetime. A lovely thing for a present. If you're buying it for a present, buy ESP. Really look after them, you know. And ESP, I think, became, I don't know, like 9% of the turnover of the whole business. It wasn't wow. even a product. But yes, they had to allocate in every branch. A percentage of the money will stay in the branch to do the ESP stuff. 
But the majority of it, like 70% of the money, went to head office. Pure profit. Bang. It's like they're running their own insurance business. I mean, it's clever, right? I don't know whether legally you can't do that in England or what have you, but they'd sorted it out and they'd started doing it. And then, and the whole thing, you know, a big part of the business, let's get ESP up. Let's get the percentage. You've got your business, your branch is doing 9% turnover ESP. Let's try and make it 11. Can you do that? Mr. Manager, can you get your salespeople to add on more years and we'll give you a bonus if you do that? Clever. Another one. Here's another example. Really clever. Every store shop that has the doldrums, right? It could be in the middle of August. It could be certain bank holidays where people leave the town or whatever. And you know when they are. Historically, every shop probably knows there's a certain week, a certain bank holiday, certain this, that and the other. There's no one around. So the Americans invented this thing called Vice President's Day Sale. And this sale will land in one of those doldrum weekends or weeks or whatever. And customers who come in and don't buy anything, and you find out why they're not buying, oh, it's too, I want that, but it's a bit too expensive for me. Come into our vice president's day sale. We've got the vice president coming from the office. You can do a deal with him. It's amazing. Come and see it. So you hype this up all through the year, giving out cards with a date on it and what have you. And some geezer comes down on Vice President's Day sale with a tie and a calculator. God knows who he is. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't matter. <laughs> Seriously. The balloons are up and the coffee's made and the wine is open and the nibbles are there. And that day sale is like a pre-Christmas day, which you've created out of nothing to boost your turnover. It's just clever, right? Honestly, I don't believe anybody is as good in the marketing field as the Americans. I've seen it. I mean, I've, spe- I've got quite a few American colleagues and they always say, you know, we speak in January and they say, oh, you must be getting ready. And we're like, getting, getting ready for what? We got like nothing on the horizon. They said, oh, but you got Valentine's Day. I say, you know, Valentine's Day in this country, jewelry wise in the UK is not the biggest thing. They said, oh, and what about Mother's Day? Again, you know, you got a percentage of people buying jewelry, but nobody hypes it up. In America, it's massive. Valentine's Day, huge numbers. Mother's Day, massive numbers. You know, they give a reason to shop and they market the hell out of it. I don't think the oomph, that extra push to market and push product in this country. I don't know if people have become, I don't know if it's complacent, if they're not just as excitable as the Americans or what the story is, but in America, they seem to market and push a lot better than in the UK. I think there's a a deeper lesson, actually, because if you buy an American company, surely you'd want to learn from what the hell they're doing. Absolutely. But they didn't know anything about the, what was going on in America. In fact, I, I'm not that I'm so brilliant. But I said to them, I was working in the stores. Like I said, I wasn't an, a senior executive in any level whatsoever. But I did remember saying, let me go out to the States. Let me see what they're doing. I'm, I'm curious. You own all these businesses out there. Let me have a look. No one else had done that. Although they had got an American guy came to London when they were in a mess and trying to sort it out. This is when it all went wrong. They did fly someone over and he was trying to sort it out. But I think they were, they were sorting out bigger fish than Vice President's Day sales and ESP learnings. It was much more of a mess to sort out than creating hyped up sales. 
What do you think of, we're going off completely off topic in terms of uh, ratness, but of course, I'm sure you're aware of the news in the last year or two of LVMH buying out Tiffany's. Now, it's a cautionary tale. I mean, look, LVMH, top of their game, they know very, very well, probably better than anyone on this planet, they know the game of luxury. But once again, you've got a European company stepping into America. Tiffany's, yes, is an international company, but by and large, their backbone is America. So hopefully they're a lot smarter. Look, they are very, very savvy people, as I said, but hopefully there's uh, there's a few lessons to be learned in this process. Again, watching how they take over Tiffany's and adapting to America because American culture and LVMH, mainly French, but international French owned, very, very different mentality. I personally have experienced two mergers that I've worked with. One was in Ratner's and the second one, a much, much smaller experience of my dad when I was working in my dad in the travel agents. And that was tiny in comparison, but it still had the cultural oil and water don't mix thing. You know, the, 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 the animosity you get from the people who are the takeover people, mm-hmm. you know, there's like a fear, you know, you're going to mess us up. You're going to make us redundant. There's, you know, da, 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 there's all that kind of thing going on. But I suppose, cleverly, I suppose, in a way, Gerald let the Americans be the Americans. He didn't interfere. Nate Light was doing his thing. He knew what he was doing. He knew how to do it. And da, 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 da. That was great. And that was fantastic for them. But what didn't, I feel, didn't work, there wasn't any learnings that came back. And yeah, you can make them right for your culture, but surely there should be some kind of mixing of business knowledge and... Well, hopefully it will definitely be a massive merger to watch. Certainly, I think the Americans can use a dose of what the Europeans have done right and maybe vice versa. Maybe Europeans... I had a discussion just recently with um, Massimo Maki, who was the ex-CEO of Bulgari International. He brought Bulgari into America and expanded it into a worldwide company. He was also the MD of Gucci for a while. And he describes the different cultures and how they entered America. And part of it was learning. And he cites actually as one of the lessons to be learned was Americans are American. It sounds almost (laughs) silly to say, but he said the best way for them to really get Bulgari into America was to take on American managers and almost become to a degree American, not lose their DNA in terms of their design and what they bring to the table. But you have to extend your hand out onto the other side so that you, it's almost like an olive branch to the other side to say, we're foreign, but we're safe because we're becoming one of you to a degree. So coming back to Gerald, today, Gerald is self-described. He's a motivational speaker and tries to be a mentor. What I do like, credit to Gerald, is that, you know, a lot of people would just recede into oblivion or lead a quiet life, not want to raise their head in any sort of way. But he is taking charge of his mistakes. He's owning them, at least publicly. He's not shying away, grabbing the bull by the horns. And he's trying to be a mentor or a spokesman with regards to learning business lessons and how to bounce back. And I think especially in our industry, the gem and the jewelry industry, it's a great example Because our industry has got so many perils. There's so many pitfalls and consequences. I'm not asking you to comment on Gerald's behalf, but from your own experiences and from your family businesses experiences, you've seen it all here. 
do you think that there are lessons for businesses out there, retail, we could call it retail or wholesale jewelry and gemstone industry players, lessons that they should pay attention to, especially today, where we stand today going forward. We've, we've had in the UK, we've had Brexit, we've had pandemic, we've had all kinds of things, but history has a terrible way of repeating itself and people don't learn their lessons. Do you think there is something that you recognize from the past at the moment that you feel people should take heed of, lessons that should be learned and, and carried forward? As you were building the question, Two of my clients came to mind that I work with now, because uh, as, as you know, I'm in the diamond business, and they're both very progressive retailers. One of them is in Scotland. He, he has one branch, but he's a guy that he opens his wings, if you like, and he reaches out to retailers all over the way. He's reaching, he reaches out to retailers in the States and retailers in Europe, and he's involved in committees that, committees is probably the wrong word, but groups that talk to each other and share information. And he's a successful guy and he runs a very nice business. And I take my hat off to him. And there's another guy that I do business with in Birmingham who maybe he's a little bit more aggressive. He's opening other stores of different styles. But these guys are out there with their minds open. I just get the feeling that some of the mum and pup stores are a little bit bunkered down to the perils that are outside. Like you said, the COVID and the economy and the this and that. And the, oh my, everything's doom and gloom. You know, there is a, a knee-jerk reaction when you phone people uh, who are re retailers and it's, you know, oh, there's nobody coming in today, you know, haven't made any sales this week. You know, there's a pervasive kind of negativity, which maybe is a British trait, I don't know. But these other guys that I'm talking to, they're down in muck and bullets and they're trying to find a way to make it work. And, and they have a broader perspective on their business and how it's impacting the local economy and da, da, da. I think those are the guys that do well. That's the feeling, innate feeling I get. It's been very interesting speaking to you. I think the lessons that we've learned here are immense for anybody running a business, whether it's small or large, I think is incredible. I think the main lessons are communication, lack of ego, speak to your people, remember where you're from, have processes in business. There's so many lessons and you know, I really appreciate your time because you bring an invaluable insight into a world that most people have not experienced or have not had the benefits of seeing. And I'm very, very grateful that you've been able to share your stories with us. Ariel, uh, can I add something as well? Absolutely. Please do. Also, don't be afraid to employ people who are cleverer than you. Actually, I've heard quite a few people in quite a few interviews saying we make a point of hiring people that are cleverer than us, because if we knew it all, we'd have done it. I get the feeling that that was one of the key things for Gerald. If he would have only surrounded himself with some top level guys who really knew how to run a business of a thousand shops, he'd probably still be there now, even regardless of what he said. They would have held it up. They would have said, look, we're running the most amazing business. But the, the problem was they weren't. That was the problem. And the spotlight came on and they kicked him out. Hindsight 2020, would have, could have, should have. 
Now yeah. we at least we have the benefits of learning those lessons. Jonathan, yeah. thank you so much. Really a pleasure. Really, really an insightful pleasure. And hopefully we have you back one day with some more lessons to be learned. <laughs> We're constantly learning. That's the point. I'd like to thank you all for tuning in again and listening to my podcast. If you found it interesting and entertaining, please follow me for future episodes or share this podcast with friends, family or colleagues. And please remember to subscribe. Please also leave a comment or question if you have one and I'll do my best to answer or perhaps even make a future episode out of it. This has been Gems and Jokes with Ariel Tivon. Have an awesome day.